Take your Bibles and turn over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Don't know if you've considered a little bit of what uh, would have been different about this summer had it not been for the ever-present and obvious circumstances. We've hit the month of August, and uh, as you consider this, about every four years, this becomes an opportunity for a topic of discussion. You go, what's that? Uh, usually, this is the time that we have the Olympics. And for us, there are events and persons that we never pay attention to, and for about two weeks' time, they become really, really important, and then we forget about them again. Uh, but uh, in that uh, time frame, uh, when it comes to that, there are individuals that you see that they put uh, much discipline uh, into the sport or the activity that they've been a part of. And uh, at times, you hear about uh, some of these uh, athletes, uh, for instance, these uh, athletes from China. Uh, that at the age of two or three are sent away to different places to train for the Olympics. And they get two and three. How could you possibly even think that that, you know, in our concept of uh, family life, how would you do this? But there's this desire to, to do well, and it's not just necessarily for uh, the glory of your family. No, it's the glory of the whole country. And so for them, it's, you know, you, you take these children, and from the ages of two and three, right up into 16, 17, 18 years of age, uh, these children are training Uh, to be uh, Olympic uh, athletes who bring glory to their nation. They've been separated, uh, not from birth, but separated fairly quickly after that to doing something uh, for what was considered the greater good of many, uh, the glory of the nation. Uh, We we talked a little bit last week about the fact that the Apostle Paul was separated and called for a specific purpose. It wasn't just for his own benefit that he was called, but he was called to minister the gospel, the good news. And the good news isn't just simply a statement and and words and that type of thing. As you see when the Apostle Paul's talking about the good news, it's talking not just about this gospel uh, message that we need as far as salvation. It focuses in on a person. And in fact, at times you will see the gospel of Jesus Christ, and really it could be translated this way, it's the gospel that is Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ is the good news. And so you find for the Apostle Paul that much of his ministry, he's just proclaiming uh, Jesus Christ and what he's done, about who he was and what he accomplished in life. For him, that was the good news. That was what he was separated for the whole of his life after he met the Lord on the Damascus Road to give the message of Jesus Christ. And the theme, as you've, we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago, is the fact that the whole message about uh, this is the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. It's in the first uh, few verses. It's in the last few verses. And the whole of this is explaining Paul's view of what Jesus Christ does in a life, both in saving a person and sanctifying them, making them look like the Son, as Romans 8 talks about the fact that the whole goal of our salvation is that we are conformed. We look like the Son. That is the desire. And so Paul is preaching this. And so when he starts off in uh, verses 1, really through uh, verses 16 and 17, he's giving introductory material. But what you're finding is that he's going to give material here that he's going to cover in much greater detail as he goes throughout the book. 
Even though he's just kind of giving an introduction, uh, he is in one way subtly by the Holy Spirit just kind of going, here are some of the subjects that we're going to be talking about in full as we talk about this good news, this Jesus Christ that you need to know about. And so for us this morning in the section that we're going to look at, which is the first uh, four verses of Romans, we're just going to see this, is that the good news of Jesus the Son is, uh, was promised uh, in the old, excuse me, was promised in the past and will last into eternity. So the benefits are, are things that you look at that you can see in the past, that Jesus was something that uh, was prophesied or promised in the past, but yet knowing him and what he's accomplishing will last far into eternity. I just want us to read through this, the first four verses this morning. We already looked at uh, verse one last week. But it simply says this, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God. And then this statement, referring to God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of from the dead. What you see in verse 2 is that the good news of Jesus the Son was promised in the Old Testament. I mean, this is something that Paul had to make very clear because what some people thought and what sometimes people would accuse the Apostle Paul was that he was coming up with something that was never ever heard of before especially when it came to the Jews. As Paul would go from city to city, he would come to these different cities and start preaching in the synagogue. And what he would do is he would take the Old Testament, because he didn't have the New Testament yet, and he would begin to preach Christ from the Old Testament. But there were still people that would assume and would say that he was just simply making up the gospel, that it was a creation of his mind, that he had made this up, and Paul was just simply trying to draw a line of what he is preaching about Jesus Christ and what he knows about Jesus Christ to what God had declared far in the past through his prophets. That is not something new. And so as you find the statement which God had promised afore her by his prophets that God ahead of time before Jesus shows up on the scene physically, that God had been proclaiming uh, that this was going to happen, that there is going to be one who is going to come that is the fulfillment of everything that needs to happen. He is a fulfillment of the law. I mean, the gospel fulfills the law, and what Paul is going to do throughout uh, this, and you say, what's the law? Uh, The first five books of the New Testament, or Old Testament, You say Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He wrote those five books. That what you find there is that there are statements made about Christ, though we look back and now go, oh, that's obvious. For other individuals, they're looking at this and going, okay, it's hinting at something forward, but we're not really sure what it is. But the law was looking to Christ. And Paul's going to declare in, just uh, in his uh, statements as he goes through that this was something that you could find in the law of Moses. Romans chapter 3 and verse 31, he makes this statement about Jesus uh, bringing salvation by faith alone in him. And Romans 3.31, Paul says, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. No, yea, we establish the law, that what the law said is really true and right, 
and declaring this. Or Romans 8, 4, it says this, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That those things that in the law that individuals could not keep in their own strength, well, because of Jesus Christ, these things can now be fulfilled in our own life because of Christ working in our lives. And even Romans 10 and verse 4, you find this statement, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth that an individual no longer needs to worry about fulfilling every aspect of the law though they're going to live the law of God out in their life they're going to show this forth it's not something that they have to keep because Christ has already taken care of the law he's been the fulfillment of it he's taken care of everything and these holy scriptures you find the statement in verse 2 <clears throat> you understand that the old testament and the bible that we have is unique In the term here, Holy Scriptures, referring to the Old Testament Scriptures, these are set-apart Scriptures. They're unique, is another way of saying it. That what you read in the Old Testament has got no single comparison point to any writings of mankind uh, elsewhere in human history, outside of the New Testament. There's no religious writings that match up to this. There are no uh, statements by individuals, whether they be politicians or religious leaders. There's nothing that matches the uniqueness of the Old Testament. As you find throughout the New Testament, the declarations is, is that this is something that was breathed out by God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that was talking about the Old Testament. That's what Paul was referring to. That as you look at the Old Testament, this is something breathed out by God. It's not just merely men coming up with something. It's God breathing through the instruments of individuals. And so you have these writings. It's not just man's creation. It's God inspiring this and making the words completely different, unique, set apart. And you go, okay, so how did he, and who did he use in the Old Testament? Now, what, or the Old Testament, you find in verse 2 that God had promised afore by his prophets. What Paul is going to do as he goes through the book of Romans is he's going to refer to individuals that are prophets, and they're not going to be individuals that we normally call prophets. Okay, I was sitting and reading an individual this morning in the Old Testament, and, and it was the prophet Ezekiel. You go, okay, he's a prophet. And uh, you can have uh, this section of 17 books uh, at the end of your Old Testament written by prophets. That's how we describe them. But what Paul is going to use are individuals that we don't think of as prophets, people who are at times, and think about a prophet's ministry in the Old Testament, it wasn't only just to foretell. Most as you read through the book of the prophets, it's telling people what God has said right now. He's not foretelling anything. In fact, most of the prophets are looking back to the law and saying, you as a nation of Israel are not following what God said. If you were going to be his people, you're missing these things. And so they're looking back and they're just simply forthtelling. And that's a way of describing what most of the ministry of prophets were. They are telling what God has already stated. They're telling it forth. But at times, there were in their writings and in their declarations where they were foretelling things. And that's where we oftentimes think of that word prophecy and prophesying is we're thinking about something that is being told at that time, but his implications in the future will be fulfilled in the future. But as Paul goes through and he says, okay, this is, these things about Jesus Christ were promised by the prophets, 
He uses two prophets that we would not normally think of. He uses, uh, first of all, an individual by the name of David. King David is a prophet. And you say, okay, was he used as far as his prophetic material, and was he considered to be a prophet? Well, just think about the first message preached in the church. You say, where was that at? Well, it was at Pentecost. Uh, You can read it in Acts chapter 2. And as Peter gets up and he's declaring that these people are hearing the gospel in their own tongue, that this is a working of God, and then he gets into this message and he makes a statement. He says, men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, our forefather David, that he is both dead and buried and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet... And knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his loins according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. And then he goes to preach this message. He's basically saying through David, he prophesied the fact that someone would come through David's line that would rule forever. But then you get later on and Peter's preaching a few weeks later and he's preaching in the temple. He's just healed an individual there that had been uh, lame for years. And he gets up and preaches a message and just simply says this, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord and he shall send Jesus Christ which before was preached unto you whom the heaven must receive unto the times of the restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. And then this statement by Peter, For Moses truly said to your fathers, A prophet shall the Lord raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And then you have those statements and you go, okay, so both Moses and David were considered to be prophets that were in their statements. Moses' statement there, you can read it in Deuteronomy chapter 18 where he prophesies of this prophet. And it's going to be like me, one who's telling forth the word, but his word you don't want to avoid because he can judge because you don't accept his words. That's what's going to make him different as far as a prophet. Both Moses and David are ones who are preaching this. And as you look through, we're going to find in uh, different statements in Romans chapter 4, where we're going to have this statement that Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. And that's a statement of what our saving faith is like. It's an illustration of what it was going to be like in the future for us to believe the saving work of uh, Jesus Christ. And, and you go in other passages, he's going to talk about these men. So what Paul is just simply up front saying is, I'm not making up anything. I'm just further clarifying what was said of Moses and David who were considered to be prophets. And then all those individuals you consider to be the prophets And this is what the Lord did when he rose from the dead as he came back to his disciples in Luke chapter 24 and he sits down with them and as you look at him, he goes through the law and the prophets and declares unto them all the things that had been declared of him in the scriptures. And so the Lord did this with his disciples. Look at the Old Testament. What I did is not a new thing that just is made up by this, uh, by this event. No, it was prophesied hundreds and thousands of years in advance what would happen with Jesus dying on the cross, but not only his death, his resurrection. 
that was prophesied. And so what is this good news that is declared? And so what you have in verses 3 and 4 is kind of a parallel statement. There's two occasions that are being referred to. So you look at uh, chapter, or verse 3, you find the statement that is describing Christ's birth. Okay, as he comes in the world and he takes on human flesh. But when you get to verse 4, the event that is the parallel event, the, these, there are statements in here that are parallel to one another, the parallel event that's of great importance for us to understand about the life of Jesus Christ is his resurrection. Both of these things are vitally important for our salvation and are part of the good news and part of what we need to know about Jesus. And the idea as you read through uh, that this one Jesus is one who has come into the world. He is of, of the seed of David. He's according to the flesh. But eventually what we're going to find out about this son in verse 4 is that he is one who has been uh, ordained or declared, uh, who is the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. There's this parallelism. Both of these things are important. Prophesied in the Old Testament that Jesus would take on human flesh, but that he would rise from the dead. And what we find in verse 3 is the good news includes that Jesus came into this world. We're thankful for that. Because if you understand the implications of this, is that Jesus came into this world, and it wasn't that he just suddenly happened. It wasn't that uh, in, well, B.C. 4, so before Christ, you know, four years before Christ, he was born, uh, but whatever the case is, in that time frame, that he was suddenly born, he came into existence. No. The Son had always existed. What's important about this event is that he came into this world to be a part of what he had created uh, to take on human flesh. Uh, you find in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul stating in another place, but when the fullness of time was come, why? Why in B.C., 4 B.C., did the Lord come at that time? Well, you think about who's in control of human history. God is, and he knows what's happening and what the future holds. And so right in the fullness of time, in the right time, he came into this world. He was, as it says there, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. He took upon him human flesh, not the sinful flesh that we have, but he took on human flesh, was born just like we were, and he was under the law. You say, what do you mean by the law? He was under all the responsibilities that we had as human beings. It wasn't that he came into this world and he's suddenly an individual who has no responsibility to God. No, he comes in, he's born into this world, born in flesh, and he's born in the same areas and subject to the same things that we are. And you say, well, why is that important? Well, we could get into this, uh, we won't this morning, but we need someone who can be our substitute. We need someone like us to take our penalty and replace us to pay our penalty. This is why Jesus had to be human, because he could die and take on our penalty of death to find life eternal. Now, he didn't just come into this world and was born of anyone. No, you also find this, that he was born into a certain family line. 
You find uh, this statement that Jesus was made uh, of the seed of David according to the flesh. He was made of the seed of David. David had uh, promised to him that uh, there would be one that would come in his line. We don't have time to look at all this prophecy, but in 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you want to study this out, David had finally conquered uh, the areas there in Israel that he needed to. He finally captured the city of Jerusalem, the city that God had declared, I'm going to put my name there. And so what David does is he finally brings the tabernacle, which has been located in different places and moving around, he finally brings the tabernacle to its final location in Jerusalem. And he brings it there and he decides this, I want to build a temple. I want to build a permanent location for God to be met with. The tent that it's in is raggedy and it's been around for a long time. I want to build something permanent for God to dwell there. And God says to him, no, you're not going to build it. Your son is. You've been a man of war. Uh, You've done what you needed to. But your son who comes after you is going to build me a place where I'm going to meet with my people. But in the side, as a side to that, which is actually the more important part to that, is that to David, he simply says this, I'm going to, after thee, set up and establish one out of your own uh, bowels. I will establish his kingdom. I will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Somebody coming out of your line is going to be ruler forever. And you say, is that really important? Well, when God makes a statement, it's a promise that is sealed and guaranteed. It's not like God is not like man who tends to lie in the shade and and move uh, the boundary points of different agreements and, and things that are promised. No, when God says something, it's going to happen. So when you have this declaration that someone in your line is going to rule forever, there's already in people's mind going, okay, this is the one who's the Messiah, the chosen one of God, the anointed one that is going to come out of the line of David. I mean, this is prophesied long in advance. You think about David, he was a thousand years before Christ. So a thousand years before Christ, this is already being prophesied, someone out of your line will rule forever. And so when Jesus comes, he's born, and it's not to any family, but he's born to a specific family, one who's in the line of a David so that he could be the one who would rule and reign. Isaiah chapter 11 just talks about this, that there's going to be a rod that comes forth of the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots, and then this, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And you go, well, who's that talking about? When Jesus is ministering, he takes that statement and and declares that about himself. The Spirit of the Lord rests upon me uh, because he has a mission to accomplish by God. And so for Paul, as he's stating here, the fact that Jesus is going to have to come into the world, but he's the eternal son, and he's going to be in the line of David, he can go through and point to scripture after scripture after scripture in the Old Testament and say, this really was going to be the case, God becoming human flesh. But the other thing that's the part of the gospel that we sometimes forget is that the good news that Jesus rules in power is due to his resurrection, Okay, what Jesus Christ is doing right now was something that was prophesied, but is vitally important that he rise from the dead in order to be able to do it. I mean, the resurrection is an important event in relation to the good news. You're saying, well, here Paul just kind of skips over the cross. 
You know, for us, when we talk about the gospel, it's the cross. Jesus Christ dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. But just think about this. If there's a resurrection, does that not include the fact that a death took place? I mean, someone has to die in order for there to be a resurrection. So Paul just immediately goes to the resurrection. The resurrection is the important event because we know someone's died, and here's this resurrection... I mean, the one that existed as the eternal, or eternally as the Son, was appointed the Son of God in power as the Son of David. The new dimension was not that his sonship, but that he is now installed as God's Son by the virtue of what he has done in the resurrection. In other words, the Son reigned with the Father from all eternity, but as a result of his incarnation and atoning work, he's now appointed the Son of God with power. So we, we said this, it said for us in Psalm 2, as we read through it, uh, he is, that statement in that passage, we have difficulty with, but what does it mean that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power? Was the resurrection this point where God finally goes, oh wait, this is my Son? You know, I, I just figured this out, I'm, I'm now declaring him to be my Son. no. Uh, what does it mean that he is declared to be the son? Uh, what it is, is just simply this. The idea of that word uh, there that he is declared to be is the term appointed or ordained or determined that there is a setting out and a declaring, a marking out. And what happened when Jesus Christ died on the cross and then rose from the dead, that point of him rising from the dead was the point where God visibly marked out for everyone, this is my son. If you don't know who he is, this is the event that declares it. You go, well, is this what people understood when it came to the gospel? This is what is preached throughout the messages of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, we've already looked at this message where David was prophesying of something, but then you find in Acts chapter 2, Peter is continuing the message and he says this, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye crucified both Lord and Christ. You now know that he is Lord and Christ because he died and he rose from the dead. And in fact, in Acts chapter 13, the apostle Paul, as he's preaching he makes the statement where he quotes what we looked at in Psalm chapter 2. And I want you to turn, and you just place here, re, I want you to look at this sermon in Acts chapter 13 that the Apostle Paul is preaching. It's one of the first sermons that we have recorded of him. He's preaching in a synagogue. And as he's preaching, he's laying out for individuals that this Jesus is one who is in the line of David. And he's where he uh, is because of God's working, and that this one is what God had promised, a Savior, verse 23, whose name is going to be Jesus. And then he talks through, and he talks about the fact that there are individuals throughout the history of Israel that were looking for uh, the Messiah, and for them, the Messiah would be one who could have victory over the greatest of enemies, and look at verse 29, and when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, these individuals that took Jesus, they took him down for the tree and laid him in a sepulcher, but God hath raised him from the dead. 
Okay, everyone was looking for this Messiah, and he was crucified, but he rose from the dead. God did this, verse 31, and he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people, and we declare unto you glad tidings, glad tidings, good news, Uh, we declare unto you glad tidings how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled in the same unto us and our children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again as it also is written in the second psalm. What is it? Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. You know, we take that term begotten as the idea of being born, but that's not what it is. The idea is this setting out and making it clear. And when Jesus rose from the dead, there was this clear laying out, a clear statement that here Jesus is not just merely a man that's really important. No, he is God in human flesh, and he is now God displayed for all mankind to see that he is God. Uh, And for him, the resurrection is a display of that kind of power. And so what happens is that there's a new part of the son's ministry now. See, Jesus came into this world and was born, what? To provide salvation. So now what is the son doing? Okay, he's got another part of ministry. Salvation's already taken care of because when Christ was on the cross, he declared what? It is finished. The work's done. So what's, what's the new ministry that Jesus is doing? Well, it goes along, going back and looking at Romans chapter 1, it goes along with that statement that he is declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. See, when Jesus rose from the dead, he was seen those 40 days, and then he went back to heaven. And for that, it's showing his exaltation that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's ascended up to heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of God. And there's this idea that Paul declares in another one of his letters that we're familiar with in Philippians chapter 2 where he talks about Jesus taking upon him the form of the servant and then he became obedient to death and even the death of the cross. And then this statement, after he's died and now he's risen, here's what happens in Philippians chapter 2. Verse 9, Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, of thi- and things in the earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is, okay, that's not a minor statement, Lord, that he is God to the glory of God the Father. See, what the whole thing of the resurrection does is that we now see Jesus ascended into heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of God, which means you're now saying what? He's ruling. He's in charge. There are things going on that he can do in this world that are now being displayed. And you say, well, what is being displayed or how is his power being displayed? It's according to the spirit of holiness. See, what happened when Jesus rose and went to heaven. He told his disciples this, I will not leave you comfortless. Okay, I'm not going to leave you orphans is really the the, the Greek word behind it. I'm not going to abandon you. No, what I'm going to do is that I'm going to bring you one who is going to bring all things to your remembrance. the, The idea is that this one's a comforter, one who comes alongside and helps That's the idea of a comforter. And Jesus declared this to his disciples. He goes, it's needful for me to go away. 
You don't want me here. And the reason being you don't want me here is because when I go back to heaven and I'm sitting on the right hand of the Father, I'm going to pour out my spirit and that spirit's going to have power. And it's going to be displayed in your life and what it does to you initially in saving you, but then the spirit's going to work through you and there's going to be power. And so you say, so how are we seeing that Jesus Christ is now exalted in heaven? It's when a person comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and that spirit is working through them. The change that takes place. We talked about the Apostle Paul last week and how his dramatic change happened from being a persecutor of Christians to a preacher of Christ. Uh, And uh, we even talked about the story of one George Mensick, as uh, some of you even knew him uh, and family uh, here in the area of Chicago, and you grew up here. You knew who he was. Uh, A man who was formerly lieutenant of Al Capone, uh, saved and miraculously transformed. And it was obvious to all who saw him that he was a changed man. You say, what's that? That's the power of Christ being displayed through the working of the Holy Spirit. And you say, every time a person comes to a saving knowledge of Christ, you're seeing the glorious power of God being displayed. There's a change that takes place. And so you say, what's that change like? Well, the Apostle Paul is going to take a whole chapter in Acts chapter 8 to talk about the Spirit's working in our life. I mean, how, how does this Spirit work out in our life? What does it do in our life? I mean, it gets to the point where it doesn't matter what faces us, we can be in the throes of some agonizing event and we don't know what to pray, but the Spirit comes along and makes intercession for us and gives the request as we need to make it into God because he knows the mind of God. And that spirit does this, and then you think about this, those statements afterwards, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And you say, well, how can people endure through persecution and do this and do it with a spirit that is joyful? They can do it with a spirit that's not discouraged and completely broken. And you say, it's the working of God in their life being displayed. And it's at those times where pressure is the greatest, where God and his power is displayed. And as Paul found out in his life, that God delighted when a person was weak. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when a person is weak, they find out this, that God's strength is made perfect in weakness. It's displayed in life. So for us, as we look at this statement of his life, it's promised in the Old Testament. It's pointed to the fact that he's going to rise from the dead, that he was going to come be born. But what is he doing now? He's ruling. You say, what's the next thing after that? He's going to come back in all of his power and display it visibly. And as we read in Psalm chapter 2 this morning, what, what's the advice The advice before the sun comes and reigns here on the earth and judges the nations that said, we're going to go our own way and do our own thing, and he does that. The statement is, kiss the sun. say, what do you mean by that? Uh, The idea is picturing what you would have had with ancient monarchs when you came into his presence to show that you were in complete submission to him. You would come and either kiss uh, the scepter that he might extend, or you would just kiss his foot. You'd grab and worship on bended knee. And you say, is that what we need to come to? Yeah, when it comes to the Son, you need to understand that He's the one who can bring you eternal judgment. And so what do you do in advance before He comes bringing eternal judgment? You come to Him and say, listen, I am nothing. 
I'm flesh that has turned and run from God. I've done my own thing, but I'm coming to you in humble submission and putting my trust in you. And what the psalmist said at the end of Psalm 2 is, blessed is that person. Blessed is that person that puts their trust in Jesus. This one who came into the world, took on our flesh, lived a life like us, died in our place, now ruling at the right hand of God. For us, the good news is, come to him now and understand his power. Experience in the transformation that takes place at salvation. And believe on him. And so for the resurrection of the dead, it's just showing that Jesus does have power. The greatest enemy that we have in life that all of us are going to face is death. Jesus has power over that enemy. And so you can rejoice in knowing the Savior. I can remember now 12 years ago that we had an opportunity to stand outside the garden tomb. Uh, I question of where Jesus is actually buried. There's the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which I kind of go is probably the right place. It's just been knocked down over the years, and the hill that was there was leveled out by the Muslims over uh, certain occasions, and, and it's in the right location, but <clears throat> there's another place that you can go to there in Jerusalem. That's, they, they call it the Garden Tomb because there's a tomb there, uh, there's a hillside that's there that's got kind of craggy features on it, and they say, look, there's kind of a skull there, and you're like, okay, uh, th- that seems to be the case. But you go there to that tomb, and they, they take you in, and there's this doorway that you can go through, and there's a place there uh, made out of stone that the body would have laid. And you turn around and come back out, and, and the interesting point of that garden tomb is it's actually run by people who, when you go through, will give you the gospel. Most places you're just going and churches are ritualistic and they want you to come and burn something or you know, give us money and we'll, you know, you'll be better for it. But they actually give the gospel that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners, just like each one of us. And when you walk out of the tomb, on the wall that is opposite when you walk out, there's a garden wall that's there, there is a ceramic tile. And the ceramic tile just simply is verse number four of Romans chapter one. And I was reminded of this, declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness and what showed him to be the son with power that he rose from the dead, the resurrection of the dead. This savior is the good news you need. There is no other good news eternally outside of him. He is the Son of God who is now in power at the right hand of God. He is coming soon. Are you ready to meet Him? Have you put your faith and trust in Him and understood what His power is like? The transforming power of change from being a rebel sinner to one who delights in God. Do you know Him? Lord, we thank You for Jesus Christ. He is the good news. We're thankful that this is not just some concoction of mankind, but it is something that you declared in your scriptures for thousands of years, pointing both to his birth, his death, and his resurrection, and even prophesying about his ruling right now in heaven at the right hand of the Father. It is promised that he's going to come again and judge those that have not set themselves right with you. Lord, there may be one who's come in here this morning and doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. 
The good news is for them that anyone can be saved. As Paul declares, anyone, Jew or Gentile, Jew or someone from the nations, it doesn't matter. They can come and put their faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. All they have to simply do is believe that this one, Jesus, was who he said he was and that his work on the cross was sufficient to pay for their sins and believe on that. Lord, there are people here today that know the transforming power of the Spirit. May we rejoice and the change that we can see in our life, the things that we would be perhaps doing today, we're not doing today because of the change that has taken place in us by the working of the Spirit of God sent out by Christ as He rules and reigns. We rejoice, Lord, in, in what has been given to us. May Jesus Christ be the theme of our life this week. That as we talk with people and, and they're trying to find solutions for all the world's problems, May we turn the conversation to the one who's really the answer, Jesus, and give us a boldness to lift him up as the one promised by God and the one needed by us all. So we thank you for this message. May we know and rejoice in your son more for what he's given to us and then go to him as he sits by the throne and make requests known. Requests that oftentimes are just asking for your power to be displayed. May we even see that in our prayer life this week that we see Christ displaying his power and answering even prayers. So Lord, we love you. We thank you for your gift to us and your son. May we glorify him. And in his name we pray, amen.